Dear saints and blessed Lenten Tide, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Today is Friday, March 1st, and you're listening to the program where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of, <clears throat> pardon me, of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Well, since it's the first Friday in March, you've arrived just in time for a special free text First Friday episode. That's when we depart from our regular study for just one episode to tackle a topic of interest. The question on the table for today's episode is, are Seder meals appropriate for Christians? Now, you've undoubtedly heard of the Seder meal, a ritual feast. Today, it's made up of symbolic foods, and this meal began the Festival of Weeks, also known as Passover. The Seder meal that modern Jews observe is a far departure from what Jesus and his disciples would have had when he instituted the Lord's Supper. So why do we see so many Christians over the past few decades trying to reclaim the Seder meal for use in churches? Many argue that Christ's institution of the Lord's Supper should supersede and preclude any practice of Seder meals among Christians, while others say the symbolic and devotional nature of the Seder help us understand the background of the Lord's Supper while others actually replace their Monday Thursday services by having Seder meals in lieu of communion. So there's a lot to unpack today. So stick around, friends, for our discussion on the so-called Christian Seder. Well, whether it's over the air, online at kfu.org, as a podcast, no matter how you tune in, I'm glad you're here. Settle in, open your hearts and your minds. We're about to begin. Thy Strong Word is graciously supported in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Visit them online to learn more about their offerings at lhfmissions.org. And if you have a question or comment about today's show or you uh, just want to reach out, you can do that at pastorboo at gmail.com. I do check that during the show in case question comes up. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E. You can also find me on Facebook. If you send me a message on Facebook, I can get your question on the air. And if you'd like, you can call and our, our friendly uh, friendly uh, board operator will answer the phone and you can either give the question to him or he'll put you on the air. That's 1-800-730-2727. Well, joining us this morning is the Reverend Dr. Daniel Gard. He's a guest professor at Concordia Theological Seminary. But Dr. Gard is also a distinguished pastor with an impressive background. He holds a Ph.D. in Hebrew, Bible, and Judaica from the University of Notre Dame with minors in New Testament and liturgics. Uh, Dr. Gard is a 1975 graduate of Carthage College with a Bachelor of Arts degree. He also has a Master of Divinity from Concordia Theological Seminary there in Fort Wayne. Throughout his career, Dr. Gard has made significant contributions served as a pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Woodland, Indiana from 84 to 89. He joined the faculty of Concordia Theological Seminary in 89. He dedicated uh, an uh, extended service as a United States Navy chaplain, where he holds the rank of Rear Admiral and served as the Deputy Chief of Chaplains for the Reserve Matters until his retirement in 2016. Furthermore, Dr. Gard has served as the president of Concordia University, Chicago. At least I think that's all correct. Good morning, Dr. Gard, and welcome to the program. Good morning. There's more there than I thought there was. <laughs> it, may, it makes God you go, oh, wow, I've been busy. <laughs> 
Well, the the Lord has certainly used you in many wonderful ways, and we hope that you will uh, add a little clarity to this topic today. There's actually a lot of interest. When I put a feeler out on Facebook, already in my comments, there were people kind of taking sides, most of them leaning to one side or the other. Uh, but I wanted to have you on. You were recommended by most of those people as someone who could really speak to this topic. So um, just before we begin, though, just share a little bit about yourself that maybe I haven't and uh, and any uh, and what your interest is in this particular topic about Christian satyrs in particular. Well, the most important thing in my life besides uh, the baptism that I received as a child and found me to Christ in his church is this. He has given to me a wonderful wife, Annette. Uh, so in 40, uh, excuse me, we'll be celebrating 42 years this summer. Uh, three children, Rachel, Hannah, and Caleb, and my brand new granddaughter just born last uh, last summer, and that is Nora. And Nora happens to be with us right now. So it's, it's a great life. And uh, that's the of anything you may say, that's what matters to me is who I am in Christ, what he's called to me, what he's called me to be within his church, and then especially my family. That's wonderful. And in fact, I kind of knew you would say that, which is why I had to lead with all of those other things. Um, so grateful to have you on. Brother, would you start us off in prayer, and then we'll hop right into our topic. Of course. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, we pray. I pray this day for all of our churches throughout the world where your gospel is proclaimed and your sacraments are offered, especially during this Lenten season. As the church moves down that road to Calvary, let us see beyond Calvary, even always to the empty tomb that is coming. I pray that our celebrations and observances of our life in you would always be pleasing to you. Pray for every pastor, every teacher, for every saint in every parish. And now, Heavenly Father, I would especially ask that you would be with us this hour as we talk about your Son, our Savior, he who was crucified, he who is risen, he who gives life to this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I asked, but I didn't let you answer. So now, um, what is your interest and experience in the topic of Christian satyrs, or so-called Christian <laughs> well, satyrs? It goes back a long time. Uh, when I was fairly new on the faculty uh, here at Fort Wayne, so that's 30-some years ago. I cannot believe it's been that long, but it's true. Uh, the issue was first raised to me when there was a uh, – the Senate did have what was called the Board for Evangelism, and uh, they produced a Passover Haggadah for Christians. And I was asked the question, should we be doing this? And I had never really thought about that particular question until that time. And then I have worked through it many times since then. I was asked to respond to it, which I did. And uh, I've only become more convinced over the years that my initial response was correct. Uh, so that is my kind of long history with this topic. I do raise it typically in seminary classes, depending on what the class is, if we're talking about uh, things like Lent especially if we're talking about Lent and Holy Week, uh, that I want to make my students aware of the dynamics around this this question. And you said earlier, there are many congregations that do celebrate a Seder, uh, and many who do not. And the one that 
I'm always a little surprised about is anyone who would substitute a Passover Seder for the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, on Monday, Thursday. Two very different things. It really is. There seems to be kind of three positions. One, people who say, you know, there really isn't any place for it at all. Um, we should just really kind of focus on our own traditions. Uh, so insofar as this is our own tradition, it has been absorbed by the Lord's Supper, and that's what we're doing. Then there are those who say, well, you know, if we have like a maybe around Lent, we have a special service where we do this sort of Seder, uh, and it's not in the context of the worship service. Rather, it's downstairs, and it's very casual, maybe like a Bible study. And then there are those, as I've said, that they actually replace some of their uh, uh, their services. In fact, one congregation to which I was called, they had every other year in Mon- on Monday, Thursday, they would want to do a Christian Seder. And I um, did not do that and explained why. So that kind of, I guess, a, a, a gives out my opinion of it a little bit. But one of my biggest concerns is that, frankly, the Seder meal, the, the Haggadah that you talked about, that's not what people are not experiencing what Jesus and his disciples were experiencing when they do the modern Seder. They just simply aren't. Uh, And now you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that was my concern is that we're really using relatively new. And I say relatively started being developed in the rabbinic culture, relatively new ceremonies and trying to Christianize them. And I don't know if that comes out of just sort of becoming complacent and bored with our own <laughs> with our own expressions of faith or what but but I, I I lean towards that too so um before we get into any of those debatable ideas maybe give us a little history though like what what are the differences between say what Jesus and his disciples would have experienced and the Jews before them and the the today's Seder meal among Jews or even Christianized versions what are the differences there well, there, one of the issues is we really cannot know all the differences. The reason is, is because the most recent uh, theater that we have comes from about the, sometime in the 10th century AD, millennium after Christ. So there's a thousand years between the document that we have, the oldest, and the time of Christ. That theater has been always the most flexible of Jewish liturgies. It's very important to the Jewish community. It's very central, the Passover. Uh, but that the Seder itself has taken all sorts of forms. I remember once I read a feminist Seder, which I thought was very interesting. But apparently, at least in, in some parts of Judaism, that's considered appropriate. I'm sure in others it's not. Um, so there's that first issue. Is we just don't know because of this huge time gap between the most recent document and Christ, and then we've got a thousand years to us. Uh, so how much more has changed during those thousand years? So every time we use a Seder, it cannot be said for sure that this is what Jesus and his disciples did. Uh, it's a very extraordinarily versatile liturgy. It's interesting you bring that up. Sorry to interject. I was going to say it's interesting you bring that up because in my research, I'll just say in my research of it, you talk about the flexibility. You know, the the early meals, these Passover meals, 
would have absolutely focused on the Exodus story, the Exodus event, the liberation from slavery. And it's interesting you brought up the feminist version because nowadays, especially in certain Jewish circles, they focus on this idea of liberation and freedom, and they're combining into it social justice ideas, LGBTQ, um, all kinds of other, I guess, anything where people feel like they need to be liberated from some sort of oppression is now finding its way into certain circles of of, of Jewish practice. And so, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think that in itself precludes it from Christian use, but it certainly, as you said, shows how, how flexible the, the liturgy can be. Yes, and I think that's an issue for the church, uh, especially if we want to communicate clearly to people about the Lord's Supper and about the Passover context in which Christ celebrated and gave to us the Lord's Supper, uh, that we understand that uh, what that's all about. When we get the depiction of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper in the scriptures, is that a Seder meal? It certainly would have uh, occurred within the context of Passover gathering, the family gathering together, uh, in the case of Jesus, uh, his disciples, as his family, it was uh, on that, that night. And there are a couple things. He takes a cup, he takes bread, but he does something completely different with it than any Seder could possibly do, both before his time and after his time. And that is this. He gives to us something new, and he says, do this in remembrance of me. Do what? The bread the wine, this is my body, this is my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That's what he says to do. Uh, he does not say to do whatever other things may have happened that I mean, we really can't have any real clarity exactly what all was said and happened, except for that part that is recorded for us by the Holy Spirit uh, in the Gospels as to what transpired as Jesus gave to his people uh, his own his own supper. And it's a new thing. It is not the Passover. It's now the Lord's Supper. And so the Seder, which is characterized by this reading of the Haggadah, um, what is the what is the Haggadah? Where did that come about? What what does that even mean? Well, really what it is, it's a uh, it's supposed to be a recounting of of the uh, of the history of the Jewish people. Right now, we're living particularly, I should add this, in a context where if you pay attention to the news, you see constantly that our, our Jewish neighbors are being attacked, uh, persecuted in many ways. And that is tragic and something that we Christians need to stand against and protect our neighbors. I think that's what God would have his people do. And so with that said, though, uh, there's always been within Judaism a kind of a repeating of the story of the Exodus. The Exodus becomes the great paradigm for everything else that happens. And that's also been taken over within the Christian church, where the Exodus becomes the paradigm of freedom. Think about the uh, civil rights movement uh, in the 1960s. This was a huge text in that movement because it precisely talked about the things they were trying to accomplish within their society. And there's having God liberate us, move us in, into freedom. So with that, uh, that same idea has permeated really Jewish history since then. 
even more recently and most dramatically would be uh, World War II and the horrible Holocaust that was inflicted on Jewish people and many others as well, but millions and millions of Jews who were simply slaughtered. Then the state of Israel was formed, which by the way, different topic, but that's not the same as the biblical Israel. That's the modern state of Israel. Nonetheless, it became a homeland for uh, Jewish people who were able to go back into the same area where the, uh, their ancestors had lived. And that nation was established. But that story has become for many mod, uh, modern Jews a use of the paradigm of the Exodus, getting out of effectively Europe and other parts of the world and coming to the promised land once more. So th this story just kind of looms over so much of biblical history, so much of, uh, of uh, more recent Jewish and Christian history. Uh, it is an Exodus that first, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 discusses, talking about what happened and not the Passover itself, but about what happened during Exodus. And he says, you know, these, these things were written for us, and for our understanding, he's not writing to a Jewish congregation. He's writing to the Corinthians, who are almost all Gentiles. So Paul was showing that Christians, too, see their own history. One thing I, I really wonder if we might do a better job of as Lutherans is identifying ourselves not so much as individuals, but as part of a people, part of a family. Uh, this is very much the biblical view that we are present in those ancient events. That's us back there. You know, th this happened to us, Paul says, when he wrote, uh, well over a millennium after the events. And so we, we look at that and say, this is ours. I, I, I want to interject here to say, I really like what you just said about how we should identify ourselves as a, as a people, uh, you know, it's we're covering Deuteronomy right now during this program. Wonderful. We're taking a we're taking a break from it for today. So, in fact, we just got discussing how Moses is reiterating the three major festivals of the year. But he's speaking to people who were not freed from Egypt for the for the most part. You know, this is a new generation getting ready to go into the promised land. Um, and yet he speaks as if they were there. And as you've already indicated throughout time, he continues both God and 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 Moses and then the prophets and and uh, and the apostles they speak as though you know we were the ones in Egypt free and I think that really is important and when you talk about individualism that's something we certainly I think suffer from especially in our context but it's certainly growing around the world when I was uh, getting my first doctorate I was talking with some folks there and they said. You know, it was it was at Bethel University, which is in St. Paul. And so I had a mix of different um, doctoral students from different traditions. And they would say, well, what do you believe about this? And what do you believe about that? You know, we weren't supposed to proselytize each other, but we were encouraged to certainly talk with each other. And I would say things like, well, Lutherans confess this and Lutherans confess that and Lutherans believe this and Lutherans believe that. And one of them interrupted me and said, well, you told me a lot about what Lutherans believe, but what do you believe? And, and I, it never occurred to me that I wouldn't believe what, what, uh, by what we all believed. Uh, and, and so this idea that, well, yeah, you might be a part of this particular sect or these people, but really don't you have your own individual kind of ideas? And I know it doesn't fit exactly what you were saying, but that's what came to my mind that, 
really we are drawn together in community to confess in community with one another. Oh, absolutely. And I, I believe firmly that is God's vision for his people. An example of that might be in uh, First Chronicles, in the first nine chapters of First Chronicles. Uh, they're all genealogies, so most people don't get through them. <laughs> Just one name after the other. I call it the biblical cure for insomnia. Uh, but <laughs> there, there's stories behind so many of them. Most of them, we don't know anything about them. Uh, they're just names to us because we have no no history of them, uh, which is not as important for the fact that God knows who they are and God remembers their names and he gave it to the chronicler. But what's very important, I think, in that genealogy is that it begins with Adam, the first man, takes it through uh, through all the nations of the earth after the flood. And then in chapter two begins to focus now on Israel and the tribes of Israel and their genealogies. It's being written after the Babylonian exile. I, I think it's probably the last uh, books of the Old Testament, First and Second Chronicles. He bases it on Samuel Kings. Has a lot of the same material. Excludes does not have all the material Samuel Kings has, and also includes some other stuff that isn't in Samuel Kings. It's almost like synoptics. You know, the, the Synoptic Gospels uh, kind of have some of the, much of the same stuff, but also some different things that uh, we learn from each of them. You have to have all three Gospels. I think you have to have uh, First and Second Chronicles along with First Second uh, Samuel, First Second Kings to really get a, a sense of this history. But the fact that he chooses to begin with the father of us all, the first Adam, the one from whom all people uh, are descended, whether you are Jew or Greek, whoever you are, we're all from that. And that is our common root. That's our common beginning. And that is where we identify as a people, a people first created by God, uh, but also people who have fallen from God. And for the church, then, people who have created by God, fallen, but now have been redeemed and brought into that same relationship that our first parents once had uh, with their creator. We live in a world where we don't get to see the benefits of that quite yet. We live in a world where there's all the stuff that comes with sin, whether it's, it's fear or death, or sickness, illness, all those things are still with us until the day we get to stand before his throne. And on that last day, all that stuff is gone. It's like Eden is restored. It's going to have, Eden is going to have people who come from all those demographics we think are important. Mm -hmm. There's going to be people who kind of speak this language or that language. People have this color skin, that color skin, male, female. I mean, all these different things. But altogether, we will be a part of that one kingdom that comes in Christ and that he has already opened to us and given to us. It's our gift now. We belong to that kingdom. We still struggle in this world. But that has its end. And I love that you said that. I'm, I'm currently walking through some of these divisive ideologies uh, with my own congregation. And when we talk about racism, we talk about tribalism, we see the divisions that people are inventing new ways to divide themselves every day. And, and part of the answer to that, uh, and I join with those theologians who don't I think race is a construct. I believe we're all human race, mm -hmm. not that we don't have differences, of course, cultural and otherwise. 
but to recognize that we are all descendants of Adam and Eve, all descendants of Noah and his family, uh, you know, all part of the same people. You know, the Bible, and correct me if I'm wrong, but just doesn't talk about divisions of people um, in terms of, I mean, it certainly it recognizes national differences and cultural differences and religious differences, but they're all people to whom God wants to be saved or for whom God wants salvation. So I, I, I'm, I, I love that idea of being a part of a people. And I wonder if that is some of the motivation behind Christians wanting to adopt this service, you know, because while I don't see the many LCMS congregations as being particularly Zionist, there are plenty of Christian groups out there that see Jews as a part of a special collection of people that have, frankly, salvation outside of Christ, and we wouldn't agree with that. But they would see service to the Jews as part of their religious mandate, and so connecting themselves to the Jews through this might be one of the motivations. I think the other motivation is just that people want to do something different. <laughs> and then maybe a third motivation would be that people really want to experience what Jesus and his disciples experienced. And so that's one of the things I want to highlight today about how it's just kind of, it's not the same. And, and so we'll talk about that more. Um, I do want to talk a little bit though. So participants in the, in the Seder consume symbolic foods, uh, matzah, mm -hmm. unleavened bread, Bitter herbs, caraset, right? Which is a sweet mixture representing the mortar used by the Israelite slaves. Uh, and each is to tell a part of the Exodus story. Then four cups of wine at various stages. But we also know that there are things like the, um, I think it's a, a fico man, the, the, a, a piece of matzah set aside to be eaten at the end of the meal. And Elijah's cup, a cup of wine set aside for the prophet Elijah. These types of things are not only new additions that wouldn't have been experienced by Christ or his disciples, but like things like the prophet waiting for the prophet Elijah, well, that that's been fulfilled. So Christians shouldn't participate that in that in any way. So I guess as we go into the break, and I'm gonna ask you to respond when we come back from the break, but take us through basically what the Old Testament would have commanded. And then we can compare that to some of the additions made over the past, well, 2,000 years, and, and hopefully see whether or not those things are appropriate for Christians. So, folks, don't go anywhere. We're going to break a little bit early, just a minute or so. But when we come back, we'll keep on going. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316.
Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Booth. With me today is the Reverend Dr. Daniel Gard, guest professor at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Don't forget, folks, that you can contact me at PastorBoo at gmail.com or on Facebook with your questions, comments, complaints, and more. You can also call in at 1-800-730-2727. All right, brother, before the break, I was just just highlighting that there have been additions. You know, the, the Haggadah, this text that outlines the liturgy for this, was developed much, much, much later than the time of the apostles and Jesus the additions to it include things that are specifically connected to uh, Jewish anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. And yet many Christians are, are utilizing Christianized Haggadahs that perhaps don't take that into account. So I guess in the scriptures, what do we know was, was required for this sacred meal uh, and then, and then, I guess, what are some of the elements today that we should be concerned about? Why shouldn't we do seders? If that's your position, it is. And uh, the best source for uh, what they were, the Israelites were told to do, is in Exodus twelve. And I always make a distinction. By the way, I speak of the Israelites or the Hebrews before the Babylonian exile. Uh, the name Jew is not known until the Babylonian exile. So everything before that point, uh, they were simply called Hebrews or Israelites, and then the Jews after that point. There's a very important uh, centuries that somehow we miss in our studies, and that's what's called the intertestamental period between the close of the Old Testament and the arrival of Jesus, uh, the Messiah, and the beginning of the New Testament. During those centuries, as they had returned from Babylon, the Jewish people were totally splintered. There was not some monolithic Judaism. We read about it in the New Testament. The Gospels are probably the best source, many rabbinic scholars will say, for knowledge of first century Judaism. In there, you read about names we've all heard, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, the priests, uh, all these different groups. They all had some things in common, and that is the Old Testament or their Hebrew, or Hebrew scriptures, we could call it for them, uh, but we would call the Old Testament. And that the, uh, uh, but in terms of, for example, the relationship to the temple, and this is really important, that for most of those groups, all those groups, they, they existed in relationship to the temple, sometimes very dependent on the temple, sometimes uh, trying to avoid the temple. For example, the uh, the priests, the scribes, of course, are very closely attached to the temple. Uh, the Essenes, the Zealots, particularly, particularly Essenes, if you think of the Qumran community, if they were indeed Essenes, I kind of think they actually were, uh, they actually reject the temple. There's a great text from Qumran that is called 1QM, the War Scroll. And in the War Scroll, they describe how Messiah is going to, two Messiahs are going to come. The first Messiah would lead the Qumran community to Jerusalem, where they would take over the temple and purify it. Once that was done, then another Messiah would come, the Messiah of Israel. The Messiah of Israel would come and lead them out of Jerusalem, basically to conquer the world. Uh, it, it's very sectarian for that group of people in that desert area. Uh, but they all were, in fact, Jewish. Very different approach to it than, say, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the only group of Jews, first century Jews, that could survive 
the horrible, tragic day in AD 70, when the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. Everybody's whole religious system then fell apart because it all depended on that temple, except for the Pharisees. During the Babylonian exile and the intertestamental period, they had developed a way in which they can live out the temple in their lives and in the village so that everything that goes on in the temple, you can reflect in how you live every day and how you go about things in your village. So, for example, the rise of the synagogue for the reading of scripture and study of scripture, uh, they would gather there. And so when the temple fell, it wasn't a good thing in their view, but their faith could go on because it did not actually depend upon the temple. There was a period between 70 and 135 where there was a great flowering called Jewish apocalyptic. And what this is, is it's uh, texts that talk about the end of the world. And they're really very interesting. None are in scripture, but there's whole trans pseudepigrapha. There's many, many big, thick volumes of these things. They're fascinating to read. But in 135, all those uh, apocalyptic visions ended. Why? Well, because... They had anticipated that just as when God allowed the Babylonians to destroy the first temple and then he allowed them to rebuild it under Nehemiah, that the same thing was going to happen now in seven, between 70 AD and roughly the same time, 135. So in 135, a gentleman by name Bar Kokhba, uh, son of a star, his enemies gone, Bar Karsiba, the uh, uh, son of a liar, kind of a divisive figure, but he had many. Many people in in Israel thinking this was the time when Messiah would come and we would restore the temple. Instead, the Romans utterly destroyed him. His whole movement was absolutely bloodied, never to rise again. And so that whole apocalyptic thing ended. Now there's one group, the Pharisees. They become known to us as the rabbis. And the rabbis have two different basic texts. They have uh, the, the Hebrew Bible, which we would call our Old Testament, they, call, they would just call it their Bible, uh, identical canon to our own. But they also have another work. It's called Mishnah. Mishnah was produced about 200 AD. And it's uh, the, uh, the thoughts of the rabbis over uh, quite a long period of time. The theory is that God gave Moses two Torahs on the mountain. The first Torah was the Pentateuch. The second Torah was the Mishnah, and Mishnah had been passed down from generation to generation of rabbis up until 200 when it was finally written down. And so now they have this other text. And the reason that's important is very complicated history. I, I, I'll take too much time to talk about that, is that rabbinic Judaism uh, has a whole different view of what happens or what should happen uh, than you will find in the Bible Itself. The, um, the collapse of those other Jewish schools meant that only and only one could survive, that ultimately we would have what's called normative Judaism. Uh, they would produce works that build on Mishnah, the Talmuds. There's two of them, actually, the Talmud of the Land of Israel and Babylonian Talmuds. And those would collect the thoughts of rabbis who comment on other rabbis. And those are, that's what's studied this to this day in rabbinic schools is the Talmud. It's really, to really understand them, I think you had to be raised with them from a very young age. They are that complex. Uh, actually, uh, incredible works 
but they have nothing to do with the scripture. So we often as Christians look at the things that the rabbi said were true coming from centuries after Christ in the biblical world as if those things are what actually happened in the past. And so the rabbis would look at the Passover and the celebration of the Passover. And there was a lot of things that had collected over the years because really Exodus 12 gives us all we really know biblically about what the Passover is to be. It doesn't include so many of those items. There is unleavened bread. There is a lamb, which by the way, you have to slaughter yourself uh, and put blood on the doorpost. I have not yet seen any Christians, satyrs, supplying lamb's blood to put over people's door, doorposts. The reason for that was because immediately after that was given, that is when the final plague occurred, the death of the firstborn. And only the Jews, the, uh, the, excuse me, the Israelites who had put the blood of the lamb over their doorposts were spared by the angel of death. Otherwise, every firstborn throughout the land died that night. So Passover, the angel of death passed over them. But in terms of its complexity, the uh, uh, the biblical demands are really just, just very basic. You know, there's seven days when you eat unleavened bread, and that's very important. You don't have any leaven in your house. Uh, no, work or, no work is to be done, for example. Uh, you observe the feast of the unleavened bread. And uh, Observe this throughout your uh, from generation to generation. Generation is a statute forever. Uh, so, along with the fact that it is kind of mysterious to us exactly what they did at the time of Jesus, uh, it's also part of what we would call the cultic law of the Old Testament. Cultic here does not mean you know the Moonies or many you know, uh, strange new religions, uh, but rather worship. What's the worship life of a community? We have our Lutheran cult. We call it our Lutheran liturgy. Um, the uh, uh, rabbis, though, uh, or rather, excuse me, rather, the Israelites began to develop this kind of liturgy, especially during the exile, especially centuries later when they're off in Babylon. We have the great Psalm 137. Uh, when we sat by the waters of Babylon, there we wept, we remembered Zion. Uh, one, one of the most heart-tugging books of the Bible is Psalm 137. And we can kind of relate to that, I think, as we look at sometimes often feeling we're in Babylon. But it's during that time they had to hold the people together. And so many of these things began to develop, but they were, as far as we can tell, not identical, different places. It remained very flexible throughout those intertestamental years then with Christ, there is a Passover that's celebrated. We do read in the Gospels of Jesus and his disciples on that night and what he does, which is radically different. It's something that forever changed that Passover. Uh, the real Passover now, now happened. As St. Paul is going to recall later, that Christ, is our pa- Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. It's over. There's no other Passover lambs. It's one I often wonder, kind of, I guess, reflect (laughs) why it would be that we want to do something that no longer has any meaning because Christ has come. 
if you're going to sacrifice, have a Passover Seder, which is uh, to remind you of some things that come from the Old Testament, but which has been put aside by Jesus in giving us the Eucharist, that uh, that you do not miss the point that there's other things you should be doing then. You should be grabbing a lamb and sacrificing the lamb. I've never seen Christians do that. Why? Because of this, because there's one lamb and the one lamb has already been slain. You can you can slaughter every lamb in the world and it adds nothing to what that one perfect lamb gave to us all in his death. So point of all that is the root of this is in the Passover and the Passover was uh, ultimately where the angel death would spare the Israelites because of the blood of the lamb. Uh, and then a, there is a annual celebration of that commanded without a lot of detail at all as to what exactly is supposed to happen. But those details do tend to grow. Uh, there's a, a tendency, not only in Judaism and Christianity, but I think about any religion in the world, that as a community continues to worship, that there become certain parts of it that are frozen in time and continue to be passed on from place to place. Uh, and that's true of every Jewish liturgy. The Passover, though, no. The Passover liturgy is the Seder, the Haggadah, varies all kinds of different ways with some key elements always present. And that's like the unleavened bread and the lamb, which were the basic elements of the Passover uh, at the time of, of Moses. When you talk about, I apologize if I did. No, I no, I was just, that. no, it was great. I was just absorbing it all. I was just thinking though, there is a, uh, you, you said, I don't know why people would want to do that. And, and that's something I've contemplated too. I Googled and I'm like, you know, why do Christians want to do the, the Passover? And there's lots of opinions out there. In fact, one of the places where it says, um, a, a, an Episcopal bishop says, you know, Christians should not be doing it. And I thought, oh, well, that's fascinating. Why? Why? What are their reasons for being against it? Uh, in case you were curious, this particular bishop's reasons were because it was um, <laughs> it was uh, cultural appropriation from the Jews and it may be offensive to them. So I thought, well, that's not super well founded. So I, I did go out there. And when I put this out there, I had a pastor write and he said, I don't do Christian seders in my church, but I experienced one once and it was so meaningful and so memorable. And, and I'm not doubting that it was for him. I, my question though, is that we often do things or experience things because we want to feel a certain way, or frankly, because it's just different. Uh, you know, we have Holy week and we have Monday, Thursday, where we have the Lord's supper and the divine service, much like we do every Sunday. Uh, if you're fortunate enough to have it every Sunday, but yet it's a little different because it's, you know, on that Thursday of Holy Week. But I don't think the point is for these things to be unique and special, but rather, you know, God gifts us this thing that we do often to receive his gifts. So I think the, the motivation sometimes just boils down to people are bored and they want to do something special or different. You know, this is even included in CPH produces a product called Journey to the Cross. They have a little stations of the cross kind of thing, and they have a station for the Passover whereby they go through and teach children the Seder meal. And of course, they make those appropriate connections to the Lord's Supper, but it just makes me wonder. I don't know. I even did that a program for, for years until it kind of hit me. 
this is not what Jesus would have been doing. So I, I don't know. I mean, are there any other reasons why you think Christians might be might be jumping on this? Uh, I don't say bandwagon; it's been going on for decades. But why they might be attracted to this? Well, I, I think you, you raise a really important question, and uh, that is, what are we saying when we celebrate the Haggadah or the Seder? Um, what, what is it that we're claiming? I had the privilege of serving in the Navy for a few years uh, as a chaplain. And so in that context, I got to actually sit down and talk to chaplains representing all sorts of variations of faith, uh, including rabbis. And very, we were able to always talk uh, and uh, never got offended at each other. We were just honest with each other and kind of opened up. So I was always able to say, this is my faith. You know, and this is why I believe my rabbi friend would say this. As I talked to the rabbis that I knew, though, I said, now, how do you feel about Christians using the Passover Seder in their churches? Not one of them said that they felt it was appropriate. This was long before cultural appropriation, that kind of language occurred. Um, the, uh, so, yeah, as I turn around, then I, I wonder, how would I feel? If a synagogue decided to have a Lord's Supper so that their people could better understand the Lord's Supper and Christians, I'm not sure that I'd be real happy with that. Why? Because it's not their sacrament, it's ours. Just as the Seder, it's not ours, it's theirs. I always want to very, be very respectful to other faiths. I never will ever compromise that it is only through Jesus Christ that we're saved. In fact, you, you something earlier, you talked about uh, different kinds of cultures. Well, you know, there's this other term, multiculturalism. Mm. I don't buy multiculturalism. So I, I don't think there's many cultures. I think there's two and only two cultures. One is the culture of life. And the other is the culture of death. Culture of death is any culture that without Christ. You all, they all lead to death. It doesn't matter what they are, who they are, without Christ, it's death. But in the church, there is the culture of life. It's only there in the church, though, the culture of life that comes from the giver of life, the giver of life who gave his life, the giver of life who rose again in life, the giver of life who comes to you, comes to me, and gives us that very life that is himself. That is the culture of life. So it's always for me... I, I want to be in that culture of life. I, I don't want to bring in things that come from a culture of death because I struggle enough as it is. I, as a pastor, you know how challenging it is to uh, help people really understand what happens in the Lord's Supper. You know, avoid thinking it's reform do or transubstantiation for our Lutheran view. Um, that, that is difficult enough. And I, I'd rather just keep teaching that and keep celebrating that. You know, I, and I think it's fair. I, I just want to comment on your – you talked about talking with rabbis and them thinking it's not appropriate, and, and your your analogy is perfect because we would. We'd be up in arms. We would say that's not appropriate. They shouldn't be doing it. Yes, we wouldn't be speaking about it from cultural appropriation terms. We'd be speaking about it from it's just religiously inappropriate. It's a mockery. So yeah. I can conceive how they see Christians practicing a Seder as a mockery because – and I think we've established it pretty well – because th what the Seder is, 
is a modern invention, so to speak. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. well, Relatively, modern, yeah. Yeah, but relatively speaking, not not specifically speaking, but you know, it's a it's a modernish invention by their religious group. So, like, if we started saying, well, you know, we'd other there's other Abrahamic traditions. Why don't we have prayer mats and pray towards Mecca? You know, no Christians would be interested in that. Well, maybe some, but but none should be interested in that. So, I think the reason why Christians are enticed by the Christian so-called Seder is because they want to connect with Jesus. And I think that is an absolute honest uh, desire. They want to, in, in even a little way, experience what it was like to be around that table with Jesus. I think where the disconnect comes is that they don't realize that the Seder is not how to do it because it's not what Jesus would have done. And in fact, what we do is a lot closer but even if it wasn't close, we have God's promise that he is actually with us. There's no symbolic freeing from Egypt. There's no waiting for Elijah. We've been freed, as you said. Elijah has come. Christ, the Messiah, has appeared, and he literally comes to us under the bread and wine. We just have something so much better. Oh, absolutely. And I always think when I go to the uh – uh, when I either am at the altar or at the altar rail as a communicant – what is happening there? I'm gathering with my family, like the Jews were to do in their homes, my family of God. And people that I see within the church are always going to be my family. There's a stronger bond even than that of blood is the bond of baptism. But we gather together as a family, and there the Lord and Master is present. It's his altar. The pastor is simply his mouthpiece. It's his words that... It's the words of Christ that come and create or, or sacrament that's given with his words. And it's his sacrament. And so the Father gives it to us. I also think of this one church that has a uh, behind the altar in what probably be like the vestry. There's another altar on the other side of the wall. And that is to remind everybody that. While we gather on this side of the altar, the saints that have gone before us, our loved ones, and those who have, have, have been redeemed by Christ and who have now stand before his throne, they're joining us in, in this one great forever feast, the feast of the Lamb and his kingdom that has no, no end. So when we, uh, we, we cry out with angels and archangels, with all the company of heaven, all those people, that's our family. It's huge. But we get to see it in concrete form when we go to an altar with those people of that particular place and time. There is the family. There is the Christ. There is the gifts, the gifts that give us peace, joy, gives us eternity itself. Um, I don't ever want to substitute anything for that. And I, I hope we can really, as, as a church, always appreciate what this true gift is, the one that he gives to us and the one that he says that this is what we are to do. Uh, all the other stuff, no, this is what you do. And those words are repeated in Gospels and by St. Paul. And that is the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, Holy Communion. It occurred within a Passover celebration. Or rather, I say, when it occurred, it was given 
within that context, but it completely supplanted and replaced uh, the Seder, the Passover, because this was the true Passover lamb, the one male without spot, spot or blemish, the perfect lamb who now goes to the cross, slain once for all, only to rise again. I encourage those who are looking for, let's say, different types of liturgies, they should search in the Christian tradition. If your pastor is not doing it, encourage him to do a Holy Saturday Easter vigil, right? Encourage him to to adopt practices that have been practiced throughout the Christian church to celebrate what we have in Christ. Now, for the pastor or congregation who's pushing their pastor to celebrate the uh, the 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 Seder, let's say outside of the service, right? So they don't want them to replace anything. They're going to continue to do Lord's Supper. That's what they're going to meditate around and receive Christ's gifts. But they're like, Pastor, maybe like on a Saturday do it so that we can kind of know what it's like. Um, what's your advice to them? Well, I would say, as I've always said, is uh, we really, by doing that, we're not going to learn what it was like because the Seder Haggadah, the Passover Haggadah that we have or that exists today is not the same as the one Jesus used with his disciples. It may have some elements in common with it, but it is not the same. It's, it's very different. And thus, it doesn't really help us understand that. Instead, let's talk about the Last Supper. Let's talk about and study that in depth. What happened? Why was Jesus in that upper room? What did he give to us? I think that that's the, those are the relevant questions that we as Christians need to focus on. But I know there are people who still are going to want to do it. I understand that. I can't. And um, in any place I've been, I've just said, no, I really can't do this. <laughs> yeah, and this program, for what it's worth, folks, isn't to burden anyone's heart. It's just to sort of put it out there that, you know, there's might be a better way. Perhaps the Seder isn't exactly what you think it is. Um, and there are actually Christian ways that, you know, might add a little uh, variety to your worship practice that are well-founded in tradition. Uh, you know, and and here's the other thing, too. If you want to just study the Bible and drink some wine while doing it, well, then go do that. <laughs> you don't have to have a Seder meal to have the four glasses of wine while you study the Bible. All okay. right. Well. We're, we're toward the end of our time, but I am so grateful for you. Uh, folks, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Dr. Daniel Gard. He's a guest professor at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. It's been great having you on the program, brother. Thanks so much for bringing a little clarity to the so-called Christian Seder. Well, I'm so honored to be a part of this. I, I pray God's blessings on not only your ministry in your parish, but your ministry that uh, God is using your voice to be his voice on the radio as well. I'm I'm very blessed and humbled, and thank you so much. So, God folks, bless. come back on Monday when I'm joined by the Reverend Matthew Tuman, who will help us explore Chapter 19 in Deuteronomy. Oh, pardon me, 18 in Chapter Deuteronomy. This is where the spotlight shines on the roles and responsibilities of the Levites and priests. They were the custodians of spiritual and moral guidance for Israel. This chapter not only outlines the support system ordained by God for these spiritual leaders. But it gives us that promise of a prophet like Moses who would be raised from among their own. Hmm, I wonder who that was ultimately fulfilled by. Well, we're going to talk about that and a lot more. But until then, 
May God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.